can't get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me are... Devinder Hardwire. And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you're just listening for the first time, what we're going to do here on the podcast today is discuss what we've been watching... We have a Slash Film Court segment for you, which is where we adjudicate your movie-related dilemmas. And then uh, an in-depth review. This week we'll be reviewing Disney's latest animated film, Moana. In addition to all that, we have a bunch of uh, feedback that we are going to do in After Dark. Uh, A lot of people wrote in. And we're going to save that for the After Dark because it basically spoils a crap ton of films. Um, so that's going to be for people who have already watched all those films. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Uh, and you guys, this week, uh, some, some bad news. 2016 continues to prove there's nothing we can cherish that this year cannot take away. Uh, Devendra, the, someone passed that you were a big fan of, right? Yeah, I just want to say a few words for Ron Glass, an actor who has been around for a long time. Uh, I remember watching Barney Miller reruns when I was a kid, and uh, he was like a dapper detective in that show, and uh, and I just have a lot of good memories of that. But I think most of our listeners will probably know him as Shepard Book from Firefly. And um, man, he was so good in that show. He was like the heart and soul of that show. Um and just yeah, wanted to say it's a, it's a shame to see him go. This year is taking so many great artists from us. Uh, but yeah, just wanted to you know say something good for him. Uh, Jeff, have you seen his stuff at all? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'm actually old enough to remember a little Barney <laughs> Miller. Um, there you go. And uh, certainly the the Firefly um, stuff that he he did was as you said, he's sort of the heart and soul of that show. Um. Yeah, always sad to see these things happen, and uh, I think he in with Barney Miller. I mean, I, I'm really not old enough to know it. I just watched mm-hmm. some reruns when I was a kid, but you know, he kind of blazed a trail for African American actors in a lot of in a lot of ways uh, with that show. So uh, sad to see. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, well, Firefly still a show I have to get around to watching, guys. Yeah, uh, you. I, I actually just rewatched uh, the movies with Mikey Epp uh, that he just did about he did an, Serenity. Uh, yeah. uh, Mikey Newman, a recent yeah. guest, did an episode of his uh, his uh, YouTube show about <laughs> Serenity. Apparently, it's very good. I have not it's, watched uh, it because I have not seen Serenity, but I've heard it very is good very things. good. It's <laughs> also like encapsulates why everybody, like the people who really love Firefly. Uh, love it for a certain reason. It is always the underdog. And uh, yeah, Ron Glass, thank you for your contribution to that too. Yeah, we'll link to that video essay in the show notes. Um, but yes. Uh, anyway, let's move on uh, to what we've been watching this week. Guys, this week I saw a movie where Brad Pitt plays a character who is a secret agent 
Uh-huh. And this character is also married to a secret agent. Not mm. only that, they make a great couple on screen, and there's rumors that uh, this coupling led to the dissolution of uh, his uh, connection with his previous significant other. Together, these two characters need to figure out if each one loves the other one in reality or if they're just playing each other. But enough about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, guys. Oh! Boom goes the dynamite. <laughs> Let's talk about oh. Allied. The that new, works too well, by the way. The new Brad That's a really good one. <laughs> Thanks, man. Devendra, oh my gosh. Devendra complimenting a Boom Goes Dynamite. Uh, <laughs> it's I a very, it's I mean, I, I have to compliment <laughs> Brad Pitt for setting it up so nicely for us. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so Allied is a new film by director Robert Zemeckis. Uh, I got everything I wanted out of this film. It's a movie <laughs> that is ridiculous and over the top and the, everything about it is over the top. The emotions like are over the top. The yeah. special effects are like sometimes it feels as though you're watching two movies. You're watching a movie with the, the live action actors and then a separate movie with all these crazy visual effects and CG that's yeah. going on in the background that looks like it belongs to an entirely separate film that and just feels grafted on to the I, I kind of like this film. new Zemeckis. I like him coming back away from pure animation and uh you know, it's not always been successful. Uh, but walk. The, what was the last one? The uh, uh, flight? No, not flight. It was the one about uh, walking the twin towers. Oh, the walk. That. The walk. The walk. And yeah. that was there was there was a lot to like there too. So I'm glad that he's found some sort of like energy or spark again. Yeah. Uh, well, this movie was. Uh, mixed in terms of the reception to it. Uh, a lot of people I can see very clearly not liking this movie. The friend I saw it with did not enjoy it very much. Uh, it's kind of predictable and boring. Like Those are some of the things that people can say were bad about the film. But I really enjoyed it because if you want to see two really attractive people going through some spy machinations and some ridiculous melodrama and over-the-top plotting, uh, Allied is the film for you. So it's kind of like a B-movie uh, spy thriller and if you go in with those expectations, I think you'll have a really good time. If you go in expecting some great drama, I think you'll be very <laughs> disappointed. I mean, like I said, all the emotions are way – like it's all cranked up to 11. There's a, right. there's a shot in the trailer where Brad Pitt kicks a chair <laughs> and it is the most insane chair kick I have ever seen. Um, although I should say, don't watch the trailer because it gives away about 80% of the <laughs> film. Uh, but anyway, it, it's really crazy and uh, something that should not be taken super seriously. And if you don't take it super seriously, I think you'll have a great time. The movie is Allied. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis. Uh, and it's doing a lot better than The Walk, which, uh, Devinder, you mentioned his last film. But mm-hmm. uh, has not been a massive hit. It looks like Fantastic Beasts has actually diverted a lot of the adult movie-going audience. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's doing better than The Walk, but it's not going to be a huge hit. Hopefully it makes back its money because I do want to see Zemeckis continue to work in live action like you, Devendra. So uh, that's what I've been watching. Devendra, uh, you've been watching a couple things, right? Uh, yeah, I finally saw Love and Friendship, with the, which is the new Whit Stillman uh, period comedy starring Kate Beckinsale, Chloe Svegny, and uh, Stephen Fry. Uh, this is a it's a fun little movie. I'm not sure if you guys like Whit Stillman, Jeff. I, that sounds like you're back. He, he's a dialogue heavy drama guy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And this movie, um, it's sort of like if uh, Downton Abbey was a lot more biting and more overtly funny, and not just more like biting, more biting. But also, like, not oh, just the, subtly... The Dowager Countess says, what? Exactly. <laughs> Who's more uh, biting than she? <laughs> Kate Beckinsale. 
Let me tell you that. So this movie, it's really funny. Um, great lead performance by Kate Beckinsale. I feel like these days we see her as like, you know, more the underworld lead still because she's going to be in that new movie. And she's great as an action lead. I, I like her there. Uh, but this movie is a reminder that uh, she, she can act well dramatically. And uh, it's funny, too, because she stars as a um, a widowed woman who's trying to get her uh, not as fetching young daughter married off. And uh, so it's it's sort of about all this plot lines you see in the like Downton Abbey type shows, like who's going to marry who? And uh, who's, uh, I don't know, like, uh, yeah, who or is, are they going to marry them for money or for love or what? Um, it feels like we've seen those plots a lot, uh, but this movie just feels fresh and original. And uh, it's based off a Jane Austen novel, I believe, too. So there's like a lot more... There's more depth to it. Um, it's a really fun look at like the social roles going on. Uh, so the movie the, is Love and yeah. Friendship. It's available yeah. on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And Devendra, looking at this listing on Amazon Prime, uh, yep. you, you can stream it if you are an Amazon Prime member. Uh, I believe it it's has, an Amazon Studios film too. Yeah, I think it that's is right. Like, I yeah. think that's right. It, it has three stars out of five. Now, that is very <laughs> bad. Typically, uh, a movie will only get under four stars or under three and a half stars if if it's very divisive, you know? (laughs) Uh, So as an example, I recently watched Enemy, the Denis uh, Denis Villeneuve film, Mm -hmm. and uh, that has like three stars. You know, that's a very divisive movie. This movie has three stars, so I'm actually shocked. There's a ton of one-star ratings here. 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Let me me read one of these one-star reviews. You tell me if any of this resonates with you, okay? Uh Uh-huh. Art Girl... Writes in, complete disappointment. I love Jane Austen films and was very eager to see this one. Uh, my husband and I watched it via Amazon last night, and oh boy, were we disappointed. The whole film was disjointed and scenes came along without any lead into them. It was really difficult to follow Lady Susan's lines and piece together what she was scheming. I kept hoping it might improve, but the characters came and went without any real depth. Uh, here's a separate review from JMM who says, The actors sounded like the director pointed a gun at them, shoved marbles and mashed potatoes into their mouths, and said, Recite this in your flattest monotone, totally devoid of emotion, fast. Anyway, uh, <laughs> do, you, do you agree with any of that? Is that does uh, that resonate uh, with you at all, Divindra? No, it's, it's a good movie. I don't know what these people are thinking. <laughs> all right, well, <laughs> uh, listen to Devendra over random Amazon reviewers. The movie is Love and Friendship. It's available there yeah. now. I mean, there are, what, Tumblrs devoted to random Amazon viewers. We cannot trust them with any. <laughs> okay. At all. All right. Trust the Slash Filmcast, not random other guys on the internet. Um, but, uh, yeah, Devendra, anything else you've been watching? Uh, I spent a lot of time with some games, actually, so I think it's worth mentioning because it's kind of related to our audience, too. Um, and uh, I, I've played a lot of Watch Dogs 2, which is the new Ubisoft game, the sequel to the original uh, Watch Dogs. And that, that first game was something I really anticipated, and uh, it disappointed the hell out of me because it was just terrible. It was a bad story. Uh, not much going on gameplay-wise. And this game is completely different. Um, this one's set in San Francisco, and you're kind of part of a hacktivist group. Uh, in the first game, you were kind of a lone gun. Uh, and this time, there's just so much more energy going on, too. And I think part of the difference is that you're playing a young black hacktivist, too. So it's not just another story um, of a white dude uh, like on a revenge like uh, journey. Uh, the first game has one of the worst opening sequences I can remember in a long time. Like there's 
out of nowhere, your character remembers like a uh, a young girl getting run over by a car, and then uh, then your sister gets kidnapped, and that's the entire game. And there, that game was such a mess. This one just—it's a lot of fun. I love the game mechanics, and I love the writing too. Like, it's a great statement on uh, tech culture right now and Silicon Valley culture, and uh, how not diverse it all is. And it's really biting at times. So, uh, I like that this game has something to say. Um, it could be a little serious, uh, even though it's still mostly fun. Like, this is a lot more like uh, Hackers, the movie, than uh, Mr. Robot. And even Mr. Robot can get a little silly, but Mr. Robot, I think, plays it a little more straight and more seriously. Uh, this game's just a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know. Have you guys had any time with it yet? I have not. I am. Uh, I, I cannot I think bring you'd enjoy it, Jeff. to get excited about it. I, uh, did I was, you hate the first one? I did. I did yeah. hate the first one. And, I, and I'm kind of that guy that has, has turned on a lot of Ubisoft games. Mm-hmm. I I'm really don't like the Assassin's Creed franchise anymore. Yep. Just the whole, I'm also tired of that. Like all yeah, that, that open-worldness. I just uh, it just feels tiring to me, but I've it heard does. very good things about this game. So. This is it's just fun. The world is just vibrant. There are people in it. The first Watch Dogs was really devoid of citizens in general. It's colorful. It's bright. It looks. Uh, I'm playing on the PS4 Pro too, so they have a lot of good upgrades there. Uh, but it's just it's great and cinematic in a lot of ways too. Um, just a lot of references. Uh, I, I love the hackers bits. Like sometimes they're just like cheesy montages sent to eighties music, and yeah. that's the sort of thing I eat up. Uh, so we'll Watch Dogs too, worth playing. Mafia Three also another great um, open world game that I spend a little time with. Uh, I wrote about both adding gadgets um, in a in a post about like why diverse games matter more now than ever as we're approaching a Trump presidency. So check that out as well. I'm still getting hate mail from that. So clearly. <laughs> That was successful. <laughs> yeah, that, Mafia Three, I did play a, a quite a bit of. And, it's really, uh, it's good. The gameplay, the, right, is not as good as something yeah. like Watch Dogs, but I like the uh, that game does really interesting stuff with the story. There's like a weird documentary thing going on. Incredible, there. incredible yeah. for a video game to do what it does, and the the motion capture and the acting in that mm-hmm. game is as good as anything so good. on television. It's great. And we, we don't talk about video games very often on the slash filmcast, but when we do, it's generally narrative games that are heavily inspired by films, you know, and For that sure. we think you might For enjoy. Sure. Uh, on that note, Dishonored 2, it sounds like you also Dishonored played Dishonored 2, yeah, I played it. I love the first Dishonored. So this is a nice treat for me because I think the first game was kind of ignored. I talked to a lot of video game players who either gave it, a, you know, a small shot or just avoided it entirely because it came out around the same time is Bioshock uh, Infinite, a game which is fine. I liked it. Uh, but when I was playing Dishonored, the first one, there was just there's so much you could do in that world. It was such an intricate little uh, piece of uh, game narrative and also how you could play it. You could approach things in many different ways. I'm loving the second game. Uh, it's just a lot tighter. You could play as two different characters now. And uh, if it really evokes that idea of stealth gameplay um, that I remember from like Thief and uh, Tenchu in some of those older stealth games. And we don't really have that as much now. We have stuff like Hitman. And Hitman even felt fresh because that series kind of went down for a while. So Love and Dishonor 2, it's beautiful. And also love the story we're going here. Uh, well, that's Dishonored 2. Guys, let me ask you a question. If, if you're to predict Assassin's Creed, my question for you, uh-huh. A, is it going to be a good movie? B, <laughs> is it going to do well at the box office? What do you guys think? I'm actually very hopeful that it's going to be a good movie. I'm, there's uh, yeah, there's enough talent there, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. My yeah, it, uh, my prediction my prediction terrible movie disaster for Fox at the box office that's my that is my prediction because it, it it looks <laughs> thanks Jeff I, I don't know I just have a really bad feeling about this one it is coming uh, a little late after uh, the peak of the Assassin's Creed craze yeah yeah I don't I just I get a bad feeling in my stomach about this one Jeff so uh, we'll see I think well that's, it certainly would be what the odds would be for for a video game movie yeah. It but, definitely. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping this yeah. is the one. But watch. I think it'll have some good. Ag- it'll. Here's what I. I, I, it I looks think will amazing. Be good. Yeah, it will be. It will seen. have great visuals because that uh, director has been amazing yeah. with visuals. Uh, it looks like the they films. took a lot of the concepts uh, of the visual concepts from the Macbeth film they did and applied it to a big action movie, and that's something I could get behind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we weren't big fans of the Macbeth film, but the visuals were really great in that film. All right. Uh, that's what we've been watching this week. Pretty short what we've been watching, but guys, I can guarantee you there will be a ton more movies that we're going to review during the month of December. Uh, but in the meantime, let's get to the Slash Film Court. 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 For those who don't recall, the Slash Film Court is our quasi-weekly segment in which we adjudicate movie-related dilemmas. You can always email us with your dilemma at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. This one comes in from uh, Logan in Chicago. And Logan in Chicago wrote this email in to slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And the subject line of the email was a nacho cheese catastrophe. So right there, he's already grabbed my attention. Yes. <laughs> so Logan writes into the Slash Film Court, The following events occurred in 2011 and have been a topic of ridicule ever since. I need your ruling on if I did the correct thing or made a Travis Shaw mockery of myself. It's the summer of 2011, and one of my most anticipated films of the year, X-Men First Class, is coming out. I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and the X-Men are some of my favorite fictional characters. At the time, the director Matthew Vaughn is a promising star, and coupled with a cool premise and a new cast, my enthusiasm is at an all-time high. Cut to the premiere. It's a Friday night, and the local Megaplex is packed. Not a single seat is empty at the 8 p.m. showing. As I sit through the trailers, my eagerness grows. Immediately as the retro titles for the film begin, there is a loud smack on the top of my theater seat. I don't think much of it, but then instantly I recognize a familiar smell. My guess is that the, as the movie began, some teenager seated higher in the theater to be funny threw a container of nacho cheese into the crowd, hitting the top of my chair. My entire shirt is now sprayed in the bright yellow goo. My rationale is that if I leave now, the teenager uh, will know exactly who he hit. And I didn't want to give him the satisfaction. At least that's what I tell myself. I really just don't want to miss a second of the movie. So instead, I sit, I watch the whole movie, and as the end credits roll and the lights go up, I'm revealed to my friends to be covered in now dry nacho cheese. So I ask you this. Was sitting in a bit of filth Worth it for enjoying the full movie I had been anticipating for two years? Or is it just pathetic and I should have cleaned myself up but missed the intro? Worth it. Yeah. Who's going to see you in the theater, man? It's just, it's just all of us in a dark room. Who knows what's happening? So I, I think let's just start by saying this man is a national hero. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Uh, this is a man who has principles and he's sticking with them, Right. Yeah. And that is so rare in our society today. So for for that alone, he should be admired. That being said, Jeff Kanata, 
yes, your thoughts on whether Logan in yes. Chicago uh, was doing the correct thing here or if he made a fool of himself. <laughs> Logan did not, uh, did not go into a feral rage. He did not uh, snicked and destroy everything even though he was provoked. Good job, Logan. Yes. Um, it's a tough one. The, the thing that, that complicates this is the friends, right? If it's me and I get splattered with nacho cheese uh, and I'm by myself, maybe I get up and leave and go out to the lobby and deal with it and ask the manager to you know, give me a different t- show time or something. Maybe right. I deal with that. But I don't, I don't want to be the guy that inconveniences all my buddies and says, oh, I'm leaving and you guys want to come with me and uh, – so well, I, I, I think it's I, also. I think it's also. In order to properly evaluate this slash from court question, Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, you you need to imagine it's not X Men First Class. I mean, maybe you are a big fan of X Men First Class. Maybe you are as big a fan as Logan was, but you need to think of it as though this was a seminal film, like right. a crazy, amazing film that you are really anticipating, <laughs> like The Force Awakens or something right. of that caliber. You know, right. that right. Like, what would right. you do if you're watching The Force Awakens or Episode Four for the first time? You know, whatever, whatever you want yeah. to call it. Some I cr- sit yeah. there and I watch. I think the I think the nacho cheese. If it's not scalding, I think I'm sitting there. I think I'm enduring. And I think this guy, uh, as you said, is is a hero. He is uh, his mutant power is to endure nacho cheese. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so you think he did the right thing? Uh, how about you, I do. Dr. Hardware? Yeah, yeah, I, I think he did the right thing. It sucks. It's uh, not a way for you to enjoy something that you've totally been anticipating. But uh, what what is the alternative? Right, leaving the theater potentially missing uh, part of a movie that you've been waiting so long for, and those opening scenes are fantastic. So you know you <laughs> don't want to do that. So I think in the uh, they're all terrible choices, pretty much. He chose the least terrible option and uh, got to give him kudos for it. May I tell a, a nacho-related uh, anecdote very quickly? <laughs> That's nacho business, Jeff, to do that. Okay. No, um, go, go ahead. Wow. I didn't you let that it. just I sit there? I didn't do it. Uh, when I was, uh, I don't know, youngish, I was uh, a, wee, a wee lad, probably older than I should have been, but still not not particularly old. Um, I uh, was was enjoying uh, a plate of nachos. My mom made me a, a plate of nachos, and uh, I asked a rather innocuous question uh, about uh, about something I had heard on the news. And my mom decided that it was time for me to have the talk, but she didn't want to give it to me. She said, <laughs> "Go outside." And talk to your father. And I said, okay. And so I went outside. My dad was working on the car. And I went outside with my plate of nachos. And uh, my dad proceeded to give me the talk, the birds and the bees talk. And uh, it was horrifying and terrible. And uh, I was old enough that I sort of already knew most of it and didn't want to hear my dad tell me it. And it was was hard. It was an awkward moment. I'm sure he didn't want to be there either. Uh, and for years, years after that, couldn't eat nachos. <laughs> the, the smell of nachos, the taste of nachos, it just had a, had a visceral reaction. I couldn't couldn't stomach the idea of nachos. That's I just feel bad for you now. Yeah, how how, so, nachos how are graphic? Great. How graphic was his talk, Jeff? Uh, I mean, it was it was very straightforward. It was very uh, it was very. Um, can you can you Matter replicate fact. can you replicate the talk? 
I think there was some some uh, metaphor used with the uh, the tools that he had on hand working on the car. There were uh, there were bolts fitting into nuts. If you know what I'm you know where I'm headed with that. Kind of uh, yeah yeah. Um, I'm just bringing that up to say that Logan in Chicago at least has a positive memory to associate with the smell of nacho cheese. Mm. Uh, and so maybe, you know, maybe it's not so bad. If he had hated the movie, if it had been, um, oh, what's a movie that you get excited for and, and, and wait in line for and go and see, if it had been episode one, you know, and then you, you got, you got nacho cheese on you, you go to all the way to the end of episode one and, and you're disappointed that too. Oh, that's a double whammy. At least he had a, a fairly good movie going experience that he'll always, always remember whenever the the waft of nacho cheese hits his nostrils. Hmm. Uh, good point, Jeff. Whereas some of us, you know, think of uh, dads telling us about humping. <laughs> right. And and now all of us will, Jeff. All of us will. Uh, so here's my question to you guys. Uh, something about Logan's email that I thought was kind of interesting was this idea that you don't want to let them know that they've gotten to you. And I've seen this as an example in modern day on Twitter. I've heard this said where if someone says something really hateful to you, you should not block them because if you block them, they'll know that you, they've gotten to you and it's better to just yes. mute them. Right. This is true. This what is, is true. Yeah. So what is your policy on that? And also just generally letting people know if they've gotten to you. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, um, I, it has recently changed in light of, of the election. Uh, for, a long, for the longest time, I, I didn't really do much. I think I had, I had muted two people in the, what, nine years that I've been on Twitter? How long has it been? Yeah. Uh, no, not, not that long. Yeah, maybe yeah. that long. Roughly around then, yeah. 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 Um, and then the election happened and things started – getting blown way out of proportion, I would start getting uh, tweets from people that had no idea who I was, that I, my tweet had been shared to them and then they felt the the need to throw hate my way as one stranger to another. And in that situation, I just, just block people. I always check to see, are they following me? No. Then they probably have nothing to do with me and probably <laughs> don't know. They just, somebody forwarded my tweet or they saw a friend post something I said and they decided to it was a good use of their time to to attack me, so I just block people. And it doesn't that, bother you. It doesn't bother you that they no. that you know, like they know you've gotten to them, or vice versa. No. I should say. I don't want to just mute them. I I want them to just not even be able to <laughs> hang out in my. You want to erase their very existence. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Devinder? What's your policy on that? Uh, generally, I do stick with the mute thing, uh, just because. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm. I've been getting a lot of those responses uh, after certain articles I've written and definitely after the election. And uh, it seems like too much effort to, first of all, go through blocking everyone. Um, muting kind of does the same thing. And yeah, I've noticed their friends tend to pile on more if they start to know that you've right, blocked if you've, them. Yeah, if you block yeah. them, like it will be a signal exactly. that, hey, attack this guy who's blocking yeah. me. Right. And, and you, uh, you keep know, on a blocking. Yeah. Keep on blocking. Block One day I was at war. Yeah. <laughs> One day I was at war with the creator of Minecraft, and uh, that was a messy day. So now you can block conversa- you can mute conversations on Twitter, yeah. which is the best thing. Going back, nice. going back to Logan's email here, I, I do think uh, the desire to not want them to know that they've gotten to you is a good one, and I think he did a good job. So really, it's Lo- Logan has done everything right in this situation. He he prioritized the movie above his physical comfort, and he also <laughs> he also took actions. 
to discourage this person from doing it again because if you know their goal was to get a rise out of someone they failed you know and uh, maybe they'll be less likely to get a rise out, like want to do it next time because it was such a failure so uh, so yeah Logan man if anyone's making fun of you play them this segment and know that uh, we on the slash filmcast are on your side right I think we all yes. agree right Logan absolutely we stand what I would do is I'd stand up next to you, Logan, and I'd pour nacho cheese on myself, <laughs> and I'd say, "Oh, Captain, my Captain." Actually, I think that's more of like an "I am Spartacus" reference, but I know, am I am nacho cheesy. I, I would just raise the package of nacho, and, uh, or know. maybe it's more of a uh, Billy Madison. Yes, we could all we could all poop our pants. <laughs> all right. And on that note, thanks for writing in to the Slash Film Court. If you want to uh, have your movie-related dilemma adjudicated, feel free to write to us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. We want to get to our review of Moana, but before we do that, we got to thank all the people who donated to our show this week. Thanks to Cody P. from Orlando, Florida, Shannon M. from Australia uh, with a massive donation. Thanks to Ryan R. as well for uh, contributing to the Slash Filmcast. Uh, also, thanks to the people who subscribed at the rate of $2 per month, Mitchell Ringenberg and Demir Grandich. If you want to support what we do here and help defray the cost of seeing movies, especially this time of year, there's a ton of movies we got to see, uh, and a lot of it comes out of our own pocket, go to SlashFilm.com, click on the SlashFilmCast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who donated. It really makes a difference, especially this time of year. Let's get to our review of Moana. For generations, this peaceful island has been home to our family. But beyond our reef, a great danger is coming. Legend tells of a hero who will journey to find the demigod Maui. And together, they will save us all. That was from the trailer of Moana. Uh, and... I'm going to read the plot summary here for this film from IMDb. In ancient Polynesia, when a terrible curse incurred by Maui reaches an impetuous chieftain's daughter's island, she answers the ocean's call to seek out the demigod to set things right. Uh, this is the newest film from uh, Disney Animation, and it did pretty well at the box office this weekend. Not quite as well as Frozen, uh, but still a, a pretty solid debut. $81.1 million domestically. Uh, and it's probably going to have a lot of legs because uh, it's one of the only kid-friendly films playing through the rest of the year. Uh, and yes, I'm including Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them in that assessment. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Jeff Kanata, this is a movie that you really strongly recommended that we review because you had seen it before all of us. So what was it about Moana that spoke most to you? This movie just succeeds on every level. I mean, it, it is a, a classic Disney animation film in the sense that it's a musical. It uh, it's a fairy tale of sorts. Although it's one that you, I was not familiar with. I think it's taken from Polynesian myth and and uh, legend and sort of a amalgamation of several, as my understanding. But uh, so it felt very fresh and original to me. It's in a setting that isn't typical. I mean. As much as I, I genuinely enjoyed Frozen well before it reached, you know, cultural <laughs> um, critical mass, uh, I, it, that is a very uh, well-known Hans Christian Andersen tale, right? And it's a very um, well-worn 
setting and subject matter for for Disney films. As much as those princesses weren't typical princesses, it was still sort of you know princessy and castley and all those things that are typical to uh, the the library of, of Disney animation films. This is so, feels so much fresher and so much more interesting, and the setting not only is is new and different and vibrant. It is so beautifully realized in 3D animation here. The technology on display is absolutely stunning. I don't think I've ever seen a more beautiful 3D animated film. And that includes, you know, Finding Dory and, and some of these movies that just came out that are really, really beautiful. This is just eye-popping. It's so well done. Then you have a great voice cast, including Dwayne. I can do no wrong Johnson uh, <laughs> who makes everything better. The man just makes everything better uh, and evidently has all the talents. Like, you know, I knew that he could sing because in the WWE he used to get in the, get in the ring with a guitar and sing sometimes, but he does a great job singing here. He's charming. Even when you can't see him just with his voice, he's charming. Uh, he's fantastic. The female lead evidently is a, a newcomer. Her first movie, she does a, a smashing job as well. Uh, and the tale itself is full of magic, full of high adventure. There are action set pieces that are dazzling and fun and beautifully choreographed and whimsical and intense and better than most video games. The, uh, the payoff of the story is awesome. It's hilarious. There's genuine laugh-out-loud comedic beats. The music from uh, Lin-Manuel from um, – uh, uh, Hamilton, Hamilton fame, yeah, uh, is is great. You come out humming most of the most of the tunes. They're they're memorable and catchy. Yeah, I although to be clear, is, to be clear, he is not the only one that did the music for the yeah. for the movie. You're right. Uh, a couple of other artists as well. Uh, Mark Mancina, who's a very uh, well regarded composer, and uh, who else? There's this other uh, Polynesian, uh, Opitaya Foy, uh, Foy, Foy. Sorry if I'm butchering these names. I apologize. But uh, yeah, anyway, just wanted to say mm-hmm. uh, I, I know the the temptation is to attribute everything to Lemuel Miranda, but he's not the only one who's responsible. Correct. Uh, anyway, I, all of that is to say this is as near perfect a viewing experience as as I've had with a movie like this. It it, it hits all of the boxes and i i was completely charmed by it and i had a blast watching it i loved it through and through how about you davindra uh yeah near perfect i think is the best way i can put it you know i enjoyed everything about this movie and uh it's been a while since i've seen a disney movie that also has like the musical bits uh, that I fully like fallen for. You know, Frozen was fine. I can understand why it's such a big deal. It's not a movie I love. Uh, this is a movie I love. I love everything it stands for, uh, everything it's showing. Kind of, uh, I love the fact that uh, it's been so popular. And yeah, it's 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 about brown people. And that's kind of different. Um, there's so much going on here, too. Like, the music is good. Um, thanks to everybody involved. But you can really tell which bits or Lin-Manuel Miranda's, because there's a bit, if you sit through the credits, there's a bit where he just kind of... Yeah, he's, like, he he's like rapping. Yeah, kind of, he yeah. freestyles through, yeah, one of those one of those bits, uh, one of the songs. Um, you're Welcome. I forget which one. You're Welcome. Yeah, and you're, you're Welcome. And it's so good. 
Like it's there's so much energy there, and I love that he's able to participate in this. The animation's fantastic. I didn't see in 3D, um, but I think I'll go back and check that out at some point. Uh, Dwayne Johnson's great. Uh, Ali Dwayne, Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson Carvalho. is a yeah. uh, quadruple threat, I think, yes. right? Because he can well, act, sing, dance, and wrestle, right? Probably, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and wrestle. So. Uh, yeah, Hugh Jackman can't do that. He's uh, he's just a triple threat. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I love uh, I love that they found uh, you know this young actress. I don't even know if she did anything before, but Ali Carvalho, like she is fantastic as the lead because she has to carry this entire movie. And uh, I also love like at certain points, like this movie felt like Mad Max Fury Road meets The Wind Waker to me like this is a great combination of things i love so, so i get the wind waker yeah. why is mad max Fe- i get the wind waker because you know that's oh, a video game that's very did you uh, not like, get that vibe during the whole coconuts uh like, <laughs> yeah that's right that yeah. is yeah. pure mad max man oh, yeah it's, it's true it's, it, that segment was very mad max i agree yeah yeah um so it sounds like a movie you're a big fan of doing yes yeah. i love so uh let me share a few thoughts i think it's been a, a long while for me since uh, Disney movies were big events. You know, I remember growing up with movies like The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. I mean, those movies were really formative for uh, me as a person growing up and as someone who loved movies. Uh, just watching those, seeing the storytelling, the animation, and the music, you know, it was all fantastic. And mm-hmm. uh, each Disney movie would be like an event. Do you know what I mean? And um, it's been a long time since I've felt like that with a Disney movie. I mean, let's go over some of the past Disney films. So Zootopia, actually, which came out this year, was pretty good. You know, can you like? Doesn't that feel like it came out three years ago? But that movie was Jeff. You and I watched it in a theater earlier this year. Yeah. Um, but you know, you got movies like Frozen, Big Hero Six, uh, Wreck It Ralph, and Tangled. And uh, cool. Uh, you know, none of those are bad films. They're all solid films, but none of them felt to me as monumental an achievement as a movie like Lion King or Aladdin or Little Mermaid. This movie, Moana, feels like that. And I think a big part of it is something that you guys have pointed to, which is the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie is not ashamed to be a musical. And yep. Frozen is ashamed to be a musical. Like, it, it, <laughs> Frozen forgets halfway through the movie that it's a musical. Uh, you take a movie like. The Jungle Book. The Jungle Book, the live-action one, is ashamed to be musical. Uh, well, it's not it, really musical. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's not really – it has like – It's th- not ashamed. It's not even trying to be. But well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I you know, Christopher Walken sings a song. It's there's a Bare Necessities. Scene. You know, like yeah. I'm saying there's enough there to make it feel half-assed. It's not yeah. – if there is nothing, I'd at least understand. But, the, but uh, <laughs> Moana fully embraces its musical roots. Uh, and in my opinion, the music is great. I don't think it's going to be quite as catchy or as zeitgeisty as Let It Go, which is a shame to me because I think this is a far better film than uh, than Frozen. Give it time. But but I time. mean, I I have had this soundtrack on repeat for the last few days ever since I saw the film because yeah. um, very few movies have had songs that have made me feel as alive as uh, the songs in Moana. So uh, as a musical, I think it's a huge success. I think also the message of the film is uh, really great and uh, and worth considering. You know, this idea of getting back to your roots, never forgetting who you are, uh, and 
I, I, and like wanting to go out and explore, which is of course uh, based on Polynesian lore. lore mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like this, uh, these messages I think are are, are great uh, to pass on to people. And so, just it's a movie that makes me feel good about recommending. I would be remiss if I did not mention some of the controversies around the film because we usually t- talk about those. Uh, and I will say, for this movie, it feels like uh, here. Here's what I'll say about about adapting, you know, Pacific Islander mythology to the big mm-hmm. screen, right? Disney is a multinational conglomerate uh, that is a, a major money-making enterprise. And, and will someday own us all. <laughs> and will someday own us all. And, and, um, and so everything they do is intended to generate revenue, right? And so uh, – and that includes appropriating culture, uh, to generate revenue. That is a very sharp double-edged sword because on the one hand, we are seeing uh, people of Pacific Island descent tell uh, a version of their story on the big screen. Millions of people will see it. Millions of people will be curious about it and want to learn more about it and maybe visit Disney's new resort, Aulani. Uh, but it, it is something that like gets the word out there and People can see this movie. People of Pacific Island descent can see this movie and see a lot to admire in the characters of the film mm-hmm. and the journeys that they go through. But on the other hand, uh, any any uh, active adaptation like this is going to result in some bastardization. It's going to result in taking something that was pretty pure and maybe not cleanly fit into a 90 minute you know movie and it's going to adapt it to that it's going to chop some mm-hmm. things out it's going to make some things more funny than they're supposed to be you know it's going to make some character journeys different and so wait uh, what what has the controversy been oh well one of the controversies has been like they uh uh there was a maui costume that like would let you uh, like have Maui oh, skin yeah. and tattoos. That, yes, you know, I Disney. did. I saw those, but I'm talking about the movie itself. Because oh yeah, yeah, yeah the so, marketing so, well, yeah, yeah. Or something. So I think, yeah. but, um, but my point just being, I was wrapping up. My point just being that like uh, there's there's positives and negatives to having your culture appropriated by Disney, right? For sure. But and like, and hold this, on, let me just finish. Yeah. I'm almost done. Uh, the only point I want to make is uh, that if you want your if you want to your culture to be adapted into a movie like this. Uh, then you you must also accept some some downside. However, given that, it feels like they really did the best they could to not mess this up. And what I mean by that is they had this uh, Pacific Island Story Council. They actually, like, went and visited uh, some of these islands. They had uh, cultural experts sit on this uh, storytelling council that advised them on all the details that you see on the island that's depicted in the film. Uh, and so it really feels like they tried to get this right. right. And even though there is still some bastardization involved, uh, it feels like it's about as good as it could have gotten. So I mean, making movies is a form of bastardization. Exactly. Right? Anything, anything yeah. you do in a film will be bastardized, I guess, to, uh, I don't know, suit mass audiences and, uh, you know, yeah, suit the corporate uh, machine work and everything. But yeah, compare this to something like Kuba and the Two Strings, right? A movie which uh, definitely appropriates a lot of Japanese culture and, you know, brings in new stuff too. But uh, that diversity, like those ideas aren't reflected in its cast, not in its writing, you know, not in much of its staff either. So this, like, yeah, it's not perfect. Uh, it would be nice if uh, there were 
you know, people directly related to this, like Polynesian directors and writers who were telling the story too, but does seem like they tried the, their best. And I have to say, it is nice to see The Rock playing something that uh, is actually like too close to his roots. You know, he's not, uh, his family isn't Hawaiian or anything, but uh, I believe he has Samoan background. So it's all it's it's all the big Polynesian family. Yeah, when you know you <laughs> you look at how The Rock began his entertainment career. Yeah, yeah, playing a uh, an absolute uh, <laughs> a character that is built to to be a stereotype in the most <laughs> extreme sense in the WWE. You know, Rocky Moana is he or not Rocky Moana? Yeah. Rocky uh, uh, Mal Mal uh, what was it Mal. Alvoa, I think was his last was his name when he came in. Um, I don't <laughs> oh man, I was I I messed that up. What is it anyway? <laughs> Rocky Mavia, whatever, whatever. Anyway, Mavia? it was a Mavia, Mavia. Yeah, uh, this is a, a far cry from that, and I think yeah. I think represents progress. Uh, it's interesting you guys say that because I think uh, the before people had seen the film, there was a lot of criticism about the image of The Rock. I mean, if you just see the character of Maui in imagery without having seen the film, he does look rather oafish uh, and not, you know, not particularly appealing. But I think once you see the film, you kind of get what they're trying to do and the character is very dynamic and very funny and also has like a pretty cool uh, emotional journey that he goes on. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, anyway, wanted to just, I, I thought, you know, some of the real life, Thoughts around the film uh, and, and controversy in the film is interesting to, to yeah. think about the, the movie under. Uh, I agree, Devendra, that it's very disappointing that Kubo did not have uh, Asian actors in its main roles. There is a uh, Polynesian actor in, in basically every major role in Moana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and that's great. I do think Kubo probably deserves a little more credit in terms of how it pays homage to uh, some Japanese myths. You know, I think I think they actually did some good research there. But I, it feels like so much more care and attention to detail was taken with Moana, uh, just because of yeah, I don't know the feel and also like the, the fact that they cast uh, a complete unknown as the major role when she was 14 years old to carry this film. It, it just says a lot about like the lengths that they were willing to go to to get this right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's very admirable. I'm a big fan of this movie and everything they did to to try and and make sure they did this right. So why don't we get to spoilers for Moana starting right now? Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. Now. You want to be. I just want to kind of shout out to the way they wrapped up this entire story because um, it doesn't feel like a Disney movie. I think something we've grown used to is the idea of having a clear cut villain and uh, you have to defeat the villain and, uh, you know, find redemption or, or something. You know, it's, it's very simple. And this feels nuanced in a way that reminds me more of Miyazaki films, right? Like there there may be something you think is your big antagonist, uh, but there may be another way to go about solving that situation. And I appreciated that. I appreciated it wasn't just a big battle, even though it starts out that way. I think the one thing that kind of was a mild disappointment to me about the ending of the film was, uh, you know, the character Maui basically does a Han Solo at the end of uh, Star Wars Episode Four. You know, he leaves and then comes back out of nowhere. I kind of wish there had just been a little bit more explanation of why he had a sudden change of heart. 
That um, I, that felt very typical. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah. That's it felt what just very a like a conventional uh, movie, which is fine. But it just mm-hmm. I just wish there had been a little bit more there because the movie did so much, so many other things correctly that I wish there had just been a little bit more uh, flesh given to that uh, that storyline. Yeah, to, to his character in general too. Like I, I did get sort of the feeling uh, that he was this. Uh, he he feels like that almost like the Iron Man stereotype, right? Like the the jerk who's saving the world. His first song is "You're Welcome." Like the most yeah. sarcastic, like, uh, way to respond to you know giving humanity everything, and he has a point. But at the same time, he sounds like uh, you know that IT guy character in SNL. And it's just a whole song about it. You're welcome for giving you all this shit. So quit complaining, humans. Um, so I I wish they had maybe done more with the character to explain yeah why he left and why he came back, but also. Maybe to nu- give him a little more nuance too, and he gets some of that, but maybe, maybe not as much as I'd like. Um, I wish this movie was longer. Basically, there's so much more they could have done with it. Jeff Kanata, you a fan of the ending of the film? I was, yeah. I mean, I thought it was so thrilling, and and I I really I thought it was a beautiful moment when she finally lays down and becomes the island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I just thought that was so elegant and and gorgeously realized. Uh, there were several moments in this movie where I was like, I kind of can't believe I'm watching this right yeah, now. Yeah. The, 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 uh, Mad Max Fury Road action sequence <laughs> is so rad and so fun and so full of ideas. I was like, I can't believe I'm watching this right now. Like this is so yeah. great. And it's generally uh, funny too. Like the, yeah. oh, they're kind of cute. No, no. Yeah, and then when they like, you know, accidentally blow dart the their friend, and like, uh-huh. there's so many wonderful beats that happen in the middle of that sequence, and it's so uh, dynamic and how it's how it's shot, you know, like the, just the the expression of the action is mm-hmm. off the charts, man. It's so good. Yeah. By the way, uh, Ellen in the chat room says, "Agree with Devendra that it's like Miyazaki, especially with the young girl protagonist and quote unquote villains who turn out to be misunderstood more than evil." Mm-hmm. And her, I mean, her father in a way is a villain too. Like he's the one preventing yeah. her and literally preventing her from saving the village. So I, yeah, I kind of, kind of level. And I, I, I enjoyed how over the top that song was about how um, utopian the village is, you know, yeah. <laughs> and how everything they possibly need is on the village, uh, on the island, and don't leave for any reason whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. uh, he said. Don't go anywhere. And I, I really loved the way the uh, the water itself is is the fairy godmother in this mm-hmm. movie. You know, mm-hmm. it, it it is a little Deus Ex Machina, perhaps, but it's also so so beautiful and and fun and funny and playful. It really the animation of a wave somehow conveys all this wonderful uh, personality. I, I yeah, I just I, this movie is so good. Yeah, the wave and the chicken. Like, that's all you need in comedy. You guys got to tell me, yeah. what does Disney have against mentally handicapped chickens? <laughs> because, uh, or uh, mentally handicapped well, birds, there, I should and, say. Because, is there uh, any other kind of chicken? Uh, there, <laughs> there is a very similar, in, in, ter- in terms of character design and function, right. a very similar character in uh, Finding Dory as well. Yeah, uh, this so is this referring is to Hey Hey, the uh, Moana's pet rooster. Yeah. By the way, is who I'm talking about. So but it wasn't he wasn't a chicken in uh, in uh, Finding Dory, but yes, yeah, it was. I, I yeah, that's point. right. It was a uh, 
But the, they looked almost identical, right? They look very similar. <laughs> and like, googly uh, eyes. They're coated yeah. in the same way, like the eyes pointing in different directions and stuff. Well, you know what, Dave? Chickens are a lesser species, and they were put on here so we could eat them, okay? So yeah. they don't on deserve that note, pretty, uh, pretty morbid should... joke about, like, because um, uh-huh. uh, pig, pulled pork is, like, a very uh, well-regarded, <laughs> you know, uh, Polynesian dish, yeah. and when she eats the pork in front of her pig friend, that's great. Yeah. Well, I was okay. just going to bring up Ch- the- chilling guys, chilling. <laughs> I was going to bring up the pig friend because that it was totally set up like that was going to be the adorable sidekick, I and then him, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> completely <laughs> kicked to the curb, like completely abandoned for the you entire. You can fit two film. tiny animals on that boat. This is yeah. not Titanic. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. Any uh, any other thoughts on uh, on the movie, guys? Oh, all good. Uh, I mean, we mentioned a lot. Uh, I just want to kind of shut out the the way this movie handles scale, I think, is really well done, too. Because when you're, you know, it, it's a young girl um, in the middle of the ocean all by herself for the early part of the movie. It conveys that idea of, uh, yeah, just being isolated in ways. And so many of the action beats kind of rely on that, too. So you see, like, you know, yeah, young girl going up against, you know, a a big lava god that's the size of a mountain. And you can you really see that in the animation and the way it's all conveyed. So love that, too. Yeah. Uh, so many great things to like about this movie, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were all big fans. And hopefully uh, you all have a chance to check it out as well. So that's our review of Moana. And it's out in theaters right now. And uh, it's just it's just so brilliant. Amazing soundtrack. I've been listening to it nonstop. So, uh, all right. That's all we got for the Slash Filmcast. Uh, stay tuned for the After Dark as well as to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. Uh, find more episodes of our show at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, our music comes from AdamWarrock.com. He wrote our theme song. And uh, SimonMHarris.com. He wrote our Slash Film Court music. Jeff Kanata, where can you find more of your work on the internet this week? You can always follow me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And I have a couple of other shows for you to check out. I do a video game show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. We have Mike Drucker on this week. Really fun episode. Uh, also, I do a comedy science show. Only 20-minute episodes. Really fun. Easily digestible. People tend to like it. Give it a shot. It's at wehaveconcerns.com. How about you, Devendra? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about techandgadget.com, and uh, check out our podcast there. Find me at DaveChen.me, and find my film The Primary Instinct at ThePrimaryInstinct.com or on Hulu. Next week, we're going to be reviewing Manchester by the Sea, newest film by Kenneth Lonergan, uh, and was hailed at, as one of the best films at Sundance this year. Uh, and I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say about it. So Manchester by the Sea, is it going to crack your top tens? Very curious listen to the Slash Filmcast next week to hear what we think and thanks for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com we're out we watch the movies flicks tracks for the good slash bad it's the Slash Filmcast for all the news and the movies coming out cause you know that it's the thing worth talking about alright uh, wanted to do an after dark with you guys cause we got so much great uh, email feedback from our listeners. You can always write into us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And um, there's going to be some spoilers for movies that we re- reviewed recently. And there's really no good way to organize them. So I'm just going to say we're going to probably be spoiling uh, Arrival, The Handmaiden, 
and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So uh, if you don't want to hear spoilers for those films, then probably skip this uh, After Dark. But if you've seen those or you don't care, feel free to listen on and uh, you'll get some great insights. And two out of three of those movies, really, you should not spoil. <laughs> I'm not going to say which two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what's funny, Jeff, is during our review of The Handmaiden, we did our review as usual. Then we did a spoiler segment. And right after we started the spoiler segment, you said, hey – if you're listening and you haven't seen the film yet, you should stop the spoiler segment and go and see the movie and then come back <laughs> and, and listen. And some people on Twitter actually reported hearing that message from you and then being forced to stop the uh, the podcast. Yeah. Which I sometimes was- you have to say we really mean it this time, guys. Yeah, it's not just a, so. You know, sometimes you listen to a show long enough, you can sort of ignore it and go, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just going to keep listening. Sometimes you have to go, guys, seriously, stop. <laughs> Uh, Ron writes in from Seattle, Washington, my stomping grounds, uh, to slash from Kessajima.com. Loved your discussion of Arrival. I felt the last few episodes uh, where you've been so personal and vulnerable have been wonderful. That's what makes our time listening to you so special. In your discussion, I was surprised not to hear any of you discuss what appears very strongly to me as the reconciliation of Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner's future characters, Louise and Ian. First, all the color grading after Hannah's death is blue and sad. Whereas the grading during her life is warm. The grading during that whole sequence where we see Louise drinking wine in her living room and looking out to a person standing by the water is blue. I think he's come back to her in this scene. Second, later in that sequence, he says, do you want to make a baby? You could read that as a conversation they had before the birth of Hannah. But given the grading, I read it as a conversation they had after Hannah's death. The clincher for me is when she says in that flash forward something like, I had forgotten what it was like to be close to you. In the context of the story, that seems like something she would say post-breakup. Ultimately, that would mean that Ian also learns the same lessons about the value of life, even in the possibility of loss. I found it to be a wonderful message about the beauty of power and hope. Regardless as to whether you read this email on air, I'm curious as to what you think. Keep up the great work. That email comes from Ron. So two, two things that Ron points out about Arrival. Number one, uh, the color grading. And actually, if you, if you watch Denis Villeneuve's movies, mm-hmm. the color grading in his movies is very intense. He uh, loves his color grading. Especially yeah. if you look at like Enemy. You know, the, and that, mm-hmm. the whole movie, Enemy, is uh, half of that movie is orange, right? It's just all orange. Because uh, it's it's kind of depicting Jake Gyllenhaal's fractured personality, and half his personality is like all orange, and the other half is kind of more cool, and there's more like blue steel, steely kind of colors there. Um, so uh, I think the color grading in Arrival is very purposeful as well, and I think uh, Ron is right, right, that they're all this stuff. Uh, af- like that happens after Hannah's death is blue and sad, whereas the grading during her life, uh, we're talking about Amy Adams' child, right? The grading during her life is is very mm-hmm. warm and colorful. Uh, so I think that's a that's a great note uh, to point out that I, we didn't point out during the show. Separately, uh, Ron is speculating that uh, they actually get back together, that uh, Louise and Ian actually reconcile. Now, did you guys? Sense that from what you recall of the film by any chance? I think that's a lovely interpretation. I think it's a lovely yeah. and back, backed up by some you know, plausible uh, reading of, of, the, of the text. I, I certainly didn't get that, but I, mm-hmm. I think it's a lovely interpretation and certainly um, open, open to that. I, you know, I like the unspecific way that it's left. That You, you can sort of read it that way. It's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't think that either while watching the film, but I need to see it again, so I'll look out for that. I would be like, I, I would hesitate before I use color grading as 
uh, a sign that, that like signals some kind of plot. Um, I don't know. It, it the the color grading didn't seem so distinct that it could right, be right. taken to signal plot elements to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt very suggestive, is how I would describe it. Because mm-hmm. you know? even like during before the the child is born and they're going through the whole the actual you know alien thing, right? The yeah, color the, grading is still pretty blue. You know? Yeah, it's mostly blue. And it's pr- yeah. largely because they're trapped in interiors. But there's you know there's there's some green. You know there's some because they're in in this backdrop of um, of mm-hmm. uh, this mountain, as it were. By the way, I listened to Jeff Goldsmith's podcast about uh, Arrival with the uh, uh, the writer, the screenwriter of Arrival, uh, Eric Heiserer. He wrote mm-hmm. it based off of script, uh, a short story by Ted Chang. It's a remarkable story how uh, Eric Heiserer brought this to sc- – he basically was the one that believed in this movie mm-hmm. and got it made. And it took him like a decade to get it made because – this is a movie that, when he was writing it, it had no stars, had no director attached to it, no action, uh, and you know, like very few people die during the movie. There's, it doesn't have, and it cost, uh, I think, like forty million. You know, it costs a decent amount of money, so it's not like a cheap movie to make. It's one of those middle, uh, right down the middle, adult dramas in terms of cost and in terms of how much it's likely to make at the box office that makes it so difficult to get off the ground. But this guy believed in it, and kept plugging away at the script and finally got uh you know denny attached to it and then they they made the film a lot of interesting tidbits in that interview i recommend you check it out one of the most interesting tidbits was uh towards the end of the film general chang has this conversation with amy adams character where they're talking about uh something that amy adams said to him years ago that prevented world war three you know what i mean uh and he says i'll never forget what you said you said and then they don't show what he said. <laughs> Do you guys know what I'm talking about at the end of the movie? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that there's these magical words uh, that General Chang says to Amy Adams that, uh, that she repeats back to him uh, that prevent the outbreak of the war. And uh, basically, he, the, screen, the screenwriter actually had to think this up, and he wrote a bunch of different ones. And uh, uh, do you guys want to know what it was, or do you, do you not want to know? Do you have any curiosity? Sure. I th- yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was the the his the wife's wife? last word. Yeah, his wife's last word. But yeah. they don't say what the words were. Oh, okay. You know, okay. he says, "You said to me what my wife's last words were," and then they don't say what the words were. Uh, oh. uh, and the screenwriter in the interview was saying how he was so pissed because he had spent all this time thinking up what the words were because these are the words that are the most important words in the film. They are the right. the crux of the film, like the, the climax of the film it hinges on these words. And he thought them up and they, they did not even subtitle them in the movie. Anyway, <laughs> um, But apparently the words were um, uh, in war there are no winners, only widows. That's what she says before she dies. That's so, <laughs> so messed up. <laughs> That's messed Guilt, up. Dude. Well, because she's so deciding whether or not to go to. You know, he's deciding whether yeah, or not she to go saved to the war. world. Yeah, oh, right. she had right. to be messed up. <laughs> Lean a little closer. I just want to talk, tell you about war for a second. <laughs> hey, man, save the world. Okay. Sad. Uh, uh, it's an like interesting. The, it's an interesting decision to exclude that from the film. Yeah. Like, do you feel like? You're, now that you know what the words were, do you feel like 
it would have been better if they had put them in or not. It doesn't actually matter, I think, because uh, Amy. It's not a, yeah. Would Amy Adams' character actually? I guess she speaks. She'd probably understand it, knowing her, you know, the, her language skills. But it actually would be more interesting if she didn't. You know, she's just repeating it because that's what he told her. And even she doesn't understand it. Uh, I like movies where you have those unsaid things, you know, that are never made clear. It, it's also not about what the words are. It's about yeah. the fact that she knows them, right? Yep. She she knows a piece of unknowable knowledge. It doesn't matter what that knowledge is. It could Her yep. last words could have been, you know, It's bye. kind of distracting too, right? Because it's just like you're saying. If they say what the word means – then you're uh, thinking as, you're thinking yes. about and you're it. like oh that's messed up why would anybody do that whereas <laughs> yeah. if you're not you're yeah. like you're just focused on what it, yeah what they're actually meant to do all righty uh, this email comes from koi koi v writes in uh, slash filmcasters kudos on your terrific view of the handmaiden i wanted to offer a few thoughts on the male gaze aspect of your comments far be it from me to judge and by the way we should mention koi is a male uh, far be it from me to judge whether the explicit sex scenes in The Handmaiden amounted to more than merely high-class pornography. <laughs> However, I believe that director Park Chan-wook made a worthy attempt at transcending their exploitative connotations through his clever structuring of the film. Parts one and two of the film are decidedly concerned with the varying perspectives of their characters. The first of the Count and of his plan to defraud Lady Hideko, and the second of Hideko and Suki in their plan to triple-cross the Count. Those two contrasting perspectives are key to understanding the two instances of the sex scenes between Hideko and Suki. There's a very important reason that Park chooses to show the same scene twice rather than just stage two different sex scenes. In the first, we are experiencing the sex as a function of the Count's plan, even if it's an inadvertent one. Had Park stopped there and not repeated the scene later in the second act, he might well be accused of purely indulging his male gaze. But in the second instance of the scene, Park is revealing the genuine nature of the feelings between Hideko and Suki. He revisits the same sexual act and uses music principally, but also all the powers available to him as a director, lighting, mood, the incisive performances of his characters, to communicate to the audience and in a definitive way that these two characters truly love each other. In fact, this return to the scene contained, at least for me, quite a bit of suspense. As we first revisit it, there's a feeling that things could go either way, that both Suki and Hideko could each be showing as being emotionally untruthful just as easily as they could be shown to be genuinely in love. Exploitive aspects aside, I'd argue that this scene shown from two different perspectives, are in fact essential to the movie. They're not superfluous at all, the way that many gratuitous sex scenes are, but rather they enable the story to be told in a way that would have otherwise been impossible without them. I'd also contend that rather than detracting or undermining the worth of the film, they actually contribute to making it one of the best movies of the year. Signed, a guy, Koi. <laughs> I like that. That email Perf. comes from Koi. What do you think of that, Jeff? Because I think you had, a, you had a big problem with the sex scenes, right? Perv. Um, uh, uh, I don't, I don't think that persuades me that, that out of the sort of feeling that I had, uh, of the movie, because I think you can accomplish all of that stuff in a way that doesn't feel so, um, man, anything I say, I don't know. It, it, It lingers, it, it, uh, it revels in the physicality of it. And I don't, I don't think that necessarily uh was was required to convey all of the stuff that our emailer suggests i i feel like uh as i said in our main review i feel like it has its cake and eats it too it it really um 
wants to make a statement against it, but but also says, "Oh, look at look at how much fun we can have for you to watch this." Well, Jeff, uh, this email comes from Clayton Wong, who writes mm-hmm. about the handmaiden to slash filmcastgmail.com, uh, commenting on this issue as well. He writes. Uh, firstly, I think to cast a sex scene in The Handmaiden under the, under the male gaze is not quite accurate. Park Chan-wook has given surprisingly few American interviews about it, but when, uh, when asked about how he filmed the scene, he had a very interesting answer. Basically, Park ensured that no men were on set while the scenes were shooting, himself included. Park's removal of men from the set and giving the space... Uh, during an intimately giving them space during an inter, in, <clears throat> excuse me Park's removal of men from the set and giving them space during an intensely intimate shoot to the crew's women is fairly convincing to me that the film's explicitness is not just born from salaciousness. It's also a great discussion point for whether or not a film can even avoid the feeling of the male gaze if the director attached to it is male. And speaking of salaciousness or delation, I think it's worth considering who the film is directed at and the cultural context it exists in. Uh, the next part of my email is not from first-hand knowledge, but as told to me from my friend, uh, Kelly Dong, who reviewed the film for Reverse Shot, Korean cinema is starved for LGBTQ characters, at least in mainstream cinema, given the country's censorship policies. This means there's a massive LGBTQ audience that rarely sees their lives reflected on screen in any explicit way. So to shoot a scene that lingers so explicitly and loudly on sex that isn't between a straight couple is a fairly radical act. This makes The Handmaiden something of a wonder in South Korea, where it's apparently something of a cultural phenomenon among women, and is hugely popular to, to the point where it spawned legions of fan fiction and fan art. This all just goes to say that I think that particular reading of the film's explicitness exists in a greater context that is not necessarily intended for men or straight women or Americans, and is all the richer for it. So that email comes from Clayton trying to explain some more context behind the sex scenes, mm-hmm. that there's a cultural context in, in which these scenes are entering in, uh, that you know might be different than than how we perceive it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's in in, in, in absolutely true. I think that's uh, something that I personally couldn't speak to because uh, I, I don't understand it. But I, I feel like that's very valid. Very valid. Yeah. Uh, still doesn't convince you as an American who's watching it in an American context, though, right, Jeff? Right. I'm, I'm yeah. only able to speak yeah. from that experience, right? So I can only speak to to the <laughs> feeling that I got and and. You know, it may not have even been the intent of the filmmaker. There's plenty of uh, of stuff we talk about in movies that the filmmaker never intended, and yet is a a valid way to criticize a movie. Sure. Um, so, you know, I I think it's admirable that the the scenes were shot in the way that he describes. Uh, I think that that seemed to like the most respectful way to do it, perhaps. Um, but also, a few people do that, by the way. You know, like sometimes they, you know, they clear the set from like non-essential crew and stuff, but completely removing all men—that's an interesting step. I don't understand how you himself. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. understand how you direct a scene if you're not present. Oh, well, you know, well, you, you give you provide direction. You know, exactly. The fault is followed in your absence. Yeah. Um, but thank you for writing in uh, about The Handmaiden. Such an awesome movie, and so much to discuss there. And uh, we really appreciate you guys engaging with that. This email comes in from Luis. Luis writes in about Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And again, uh, we're spoiling all these movies. Uh, Luis writes in, while the iron is hot, I'd like to share a small experience I had in the theater while I saw Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Oh boy, was I not ready for this. We all saw how the matron got what she deserved for being an abusive nut job. And me, at my 30 years old, was even happy to see that woman go in such a horrific way. However, I forgot for a second I was watching a kid's movie 
Because as I was reacting <laughs> to this, so did this five-year-old a few seats away. He yelled out loud, no, they killed his mom. <laughs> and the kid started crying so loud, he had to be removed from the theater. I couldn't help but laugh at the situation and feel so sorry uh, for this kid that instead of being taken to a movie where he will see Fantastic Beasts, as if he was taken to the zoo, he just saw a, a kid's mom get killed. <laughs> as abusive as she was, it must have been so traumatic for this kid. Anyway, yeah. just my experience compared to a five-year-old's. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. Uh, I tried to, I, 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 you know, I tweeted uh, when I saw the movie. You know, it is, it's rough. It's rough out there for a kid. Uh, so he's referring to the death of Samantha Morton's character, Mary Lou, in the film, who gets pretty brutally killed. Graphic in that, in that yeah. movie, yeah. And we linger, we linger on on that. It's not just uh, suggested that she's yeah, pummeled to death. Yeah, and let's let's also not. I don't know if we mentioned during our review that at the end of the movie, uh, they just decide to kill Credence. We talk about that, right? Yeah, they just killed him. Yep. with yep. Uh, with guns. I mean, wands. <laughs> yeah. They just wanded him to death. Yeah. Um, so I, I tweeted this uh, email out, uh, kind of mocking Fantastic Beasts as a child's film, a children's film, and I got a bunch of tweets back from people saying, "Hey, well, Harry Potter had lots of instances of the word kill and death, and there's like things like Dementors and other elements that mm-hmm. are very scary." And you know, thinking back, Jeff, there are a bunch of kids' movies that have scary elements to them, right? Yeah. Yes. So, so is there a reason why? you're going particularly harsh on Fantastic Beasts because, you know, Bambi's mom dies, you know, like, mm-hmm. like a lot of horrible things. Have you seen to... The Lion King? Yeah. Yes. You know what I mean? So like, no, yeah. I, it, how is Fantastic Beasts any worse than Lion King, right? Yeah. Grimm's fairy tales, right, are, are very, very dark, especially yes. in their original form. Uh, and there's a, a lot of people saying, oh, we shouldn't protect kids from grisly narrative. Uh, my, my only retort to this is, that stuff, I think, in this particular case of in Fantastic Beasts, does not add anything. It, it does not illustrate a point. It is not. It is not a uh, a fable in the truest test in the sense in that it is a uh, uh, cautionary tale. It, there's no. There's no need for that here. It seems sense. The, the movie is so sloppy in so many ways, in my opinion, that. You know, you, you can see sometimes you can find like let's say Willy Wonka. The con- the connotation of what happens in Willy Wonka is horrifying, right? <laughs> what happens yeah. to those poor children is terrifying. And the there movie are does sequ- it also makes it clear too, like in the tone, right? I think, and uh, in in that performance, it gets creepy. And yet, I think that is a fantastic kids movie because <laughs> it is illustrative it is the, all those things are there for very specific reasons and create a a fabric that you walk away having learned something having uh having your own temptations uh challenged right what 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 is the point of it in fantastic beasts i, right, I find right. it it's it's just there f- for because we can show that stuff now i guess i don't know some of the later it, – it, it's interesting. There's a, there's a graphic online that shows you – like one of, the, one of the cool things I love about movies is when movie studios allow the movie to play with their logo at the beginning of the film. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Love that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's a different color or maybe there's different words there. 
Uh, and one of the more interesting progressions is if you see the Harry Potter uh, movies, their logos over time, right? Uh, the Warner Brothers logo at, at, at the beginning of Harry Potter movies, uh, it gets darker and more depressing as the movies go on. And it's, it's like really interesting. You know, if you see them all, there's like a graphic right. online. I think I saw it on Reddit. But it juxtaposes all the logos. And the first movie, it's very cheerful and very much like regular Warner Brothers. And then by the end, you know, there's not even any music. You know, by the, by the last film, there's no music. It's just Warner Brothers in a dark, you know, dystopian cloud. Here's your coming. damn Potter movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And so uh, I, I think there's something to, you know, I, I think like on a, on a broad level, the filmmakers and, um, uh, and uh, J.K. Rowling or Rowling were trying to uh, say something about like maturation and, uh, and how uh, you go from being innocent to, you know, being beset at all sides by the realities and dangers and evils of the world. Uh, well, in a lot of ways, those books are about uh, a boy growing up, right? They're taking each book is a year in the life, and it's about from growing from adolescence into young adulthood. And I, you know, I, a lot of people tweeted at me those sentiments that the, the books get darker and darker. Fair enough, I suppose, but I don't. <laughs> I don't think uh, darkness equals good. I don't know where that came from. Right. That there's somehow this equivalence of of dark being better. Uh, that mature equals dark equals more interesting. I mean, all we have to do is look at Moana and say that movie is the opposite of dark, but <laughs> it is as vibrant and fun. Well, those are very light adjectives. I'll say it is as <laughs> it is thrilling. as gritty. Well, no, as it's, as it's as thrilling as and yeah. action packed and um, powerful as as. Anything. I mean, for adults, I, I think it, it is a an experience that I think adult adults will enjoy as much as kids. And so good and thrilling and uh, interesting and thought provoking. It doesn't have to just be the the realm of darkness. Yeah, fair point, Jeff. Uh, I I think a part of it was uh, was Batman Begins. You know, I think that was a big part of it because that was like a reboot. I think it was well before that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Batman Begins, I think, again, like, obviously the Potter franchise stretches back a long way, but in terms of modern day reboots and reimaginings, you know, Batman it's Begins. It's post 90s, right? Yeah, the 90s showed you could take something about... like, showed you could take something very goofy yeah. and make it into something very hard hitting and gritty and, and actually physically dark. We've gone um, from, like, yeah, the Batman and Robin and uh, Batman Forever, you know, aesthetic towards something. That is genuinely dark, and uh, you know, lots of cultural reasons for that too. In the two thousands, yeah. Uh, but I, 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 I get your point, Jeff, and I also get um, people's point that dark isn't necessarily bad, but it's also not necessarily good. No, I'm not saying it's yeah. it's, it's bad on the face of it either. Yeah. But I, I also, you know, there's. For a long time, as you, as you said, Devinger, in the 90s, it was like, okay, this, but a dark, gritty version. And everybody would go, ooh. Right. Well, no, I, I, I don't even mean that. Like, dark and gritty in the 90s was fucking, like, pop colors. Like, it was not, yeah. it was not dark and gritty. 
You know, it was bright colors and stage sets. And uh, when did it start to change? Maybe The Matrix was like a genuinely dark movie. Um, but then, you know, yeah, after after 9-11 and you have Bush's you know, presidency, yeah. like things got really, really dark. In, in the world. I agree. And, and you know, honestly, I'm ready for the opposite of that. I, we <laughs> have, we have been going through, I know we got, we got a new, uh, uh-huh. dark reality to live in. And I think, unfortunately, we, we have been going through such a glut of post apocalyptic narrative of zombies and, uh, <laughs> wastelands. And uh, there's so much of that in our popular entertainment right now that it's, I think it, it permeates the, the cultural psyche. And there's just such a dour, depressive, uh, just pall over, over so much of, of popular media. I'm mm-hmm. ready for the, that to break out. I'm ready for things to be more like Moana. I'm ready right. for there to be a, a lightness and a, a, I'm ready for the stranger things is of the world where there's this like eighties, like things can be dark, but there's like a joy to it. You know, it's, yeah. I'm ready for the eighties to be back and the nineties to not. <laughs> <laughs> this email comes into slash filmcast gmail.com from David from Pennsylvania. David writes in, I know there's a ton of movie news to get through every week, so I can't fault you for not discussing this. However, I realized I don't believe you mentioned the long overdue honorary Oscar that Jackie Chan received a few weeks ago. I know the election kind of took over the news, but it, it was just so great and monumental for him to finally be properly honored. You can see his influence in some of the best fight scenes in recent history, including, I would argue, John Wick. In fact, he might even be the single most important figure in action-slash-fight choreography in film history, besides Yen Ping, who taught Jackie the style that Jackie would go on to make his own. That is, of course, not even including his unrivaled status in the action-comedy genre. Maybe I'm overstating it because I've been such a big fan of his since I was a kid, but it seemed like some major news that may have been missed in the podcast. Lastly, I know it's controversial, but my favorite Jackie movie is Legend of Drunken Master because the fighting style is so great uh, to look at, and the late Anita Mui gives an amazing performance as his stepmom. I don't think that's controversial at all. Uh, yeah, how is that controversial? That's Drunken Master too, right? So yeah, that yeah, is yeah. that is that is one, one of his greatest films of all time. Yeah, and that's Indeed. the one people often go back to. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, but also, I, think, I can't I believe gotta... I can't believe Amita, Anita Mui has passed away. That's shocking to me. Yeah, very sad. Yeah. She was forty years old. Oh, anyway, sorry, Jeff. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that. I mean, it's kind of obvious, I guess, but you, you can't just say Jackie Chan and Yen Wu Ping. You got to put Bruce Lee in there, right? He, that yeah, guy. Yeah changed the world as far as it definitely fighting. like bruce lee changed things he changed what was possible and what you could do with fight choreography and stuff but i think i guess the most direct influence of what we have now and the way the choreography is done um you know jackie chan has just had a much more lasting influence you know bruce lee was around for a bit and he had a couple he had movies that had a lot of like a, a lot of an impact but jackie chan has been around forever you know, he's I'm just been, saying he's you don't you don't get so a Jackie long. Chan without a Bruce Lee. No, definitely not. Def- yeah, true for sure. Uh, firstly, I would say I have a video essay I made with uh, Gareth Evans, the guy who directed the Raid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a video essay with him where he describes his five favorite Jackie Chan fight scenes, or mm-hmm. uh, his five favorite fight scenes of all time, I think. And then Jackie Chan is is very generously mentioned numerous times. Oh yeah, uh, but. Uh, I think what Jackie Chan – what's great about Jackie Chan is that he plays a very similar character in almost all his films where he's doing this insanely challenging fight choreography. But he himself is acting as though he can't believe he's doing it. Right. Yeah. And that's why he's like a great audience surrogate. Like we are in awe 
of what he is doing, but he his so character is, he. is also yeah. in awe of it as <laughs> yeah. well. Well, and, there are two types of characters, right? Because there is also the Jackie Chan character that knows how awesome he is and uh, just goes around being awesome and doesn't make a big deal about it, too. And I'm thinking of like when they would do like what dozens or many, many takes to do to get something very simple. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, like simple jumping things. through a car window. Yeah. To get into well, a car. Jumping yeah. through, but also I think there was something about like landing something in a cup or making something. Yeah. It was like a minor prop thing. And they did so many takes just so it yeah, seems like he's broken he almost every bone in his body. He's, yeah. he's done yeah. uh, a lot of – he sacrificed a lot just – he sacrificed potentially his life just <laughs> for your entertainment, you know, yeah. just to, to make you uh, like uh, be in awe. And, mm-hmm. and and wonder at how he did it just for like well, just for a second for him too. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, but you know, you there's easier ways to do it is what I'm saying. Yeah, here, for you know? sure. Like without, he came out of the like life. he came out of the, the basically like farm of like you know act, uh, martial arts students, you know, and like yeah. not all of them would be successful. So like he had a he led a very hard life, and then he found success, and that was great. Talk about pure joy though, like what you were mentioning, Jeff. Like I think that's the thing I love about Jackie Chan because yeah. everything he does. It is pure joy. And when he did try to go, like, uh, not dark, but he tried to go a little mature and a little, like, dramatic in some recent movies, and that didn't work well at all. It was terrible. Um, And it shows, like, yeah, he works best in that pure joy action mode. Yeah, uh, and you compare him to, uh, like, Jet Li or Tony Jaa, who are very talented, Mm -hmm. but it is not even close to the same level of joy that I feel watching a Jackie Chan fight scene. I, I do really miss old school Jackie Chan. You know, he does a lot of uh, CG and wire work these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the guy the oh, guy's earned 60, it. 60, right? The guy's yeah. earned it. You know, he can do whatever the hell he wants. Uh, but it does make me long for the days when, hey, you know, uh, wow. I, I, uh-huh. I don't even understand how he did that. I remember what, like the first... The first movie that uh, really made him burst on back onto the scene in America was Rumble in the Bronx. Yeah, for some uh, reason that movie, but yeah. Yeah, uh, they just kind of redubbed it and gave Jackie Chan a second chance. And I just remember uh, at the time how big of a deal that was to me seeing that movie mm-hmm. because there was a, a major action scene where he jumps from one apartment building to another apartment building that's like, <laughs> I don't know, 8 to 10 feet away or something ridiculous mm-hmm. like that. And I read online how he did it. Apparently, he only had a pillow. Like, he, he had a pillow underneath his shirt if he felt, you know, that would be the only thing that was protecting him. There was, That'll there save was you no, like, fall. wires or yeah. crane or anything. And you can feel and see it, the, the Dave, danger. Yeah. It was one of those memory foam pillows. That <laughs> it was, was like, it was a Casper pillow, actually. It was no. so, so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, Jackie Chan has my loyalty for life. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. He's so, kind of impossible not to love. He's yeah. just just universally. I mean, aside from his controversial statements politically, which I'm not going to get into. <laughs> oh, I don't mean that. I mean, you know, yeah. on screen. <laughs> yes, on screen as a character, he's awesome. So, uh, all right. Well, that is all the emails we have. That's a lot of emails, uh, and we don't uh, dive into them like that too often. So, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed listening to that. But we should uh, do more of that. I love I love the answering the email. Back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our listeners are awesome. You guys are all awesome. Thanks for writing in. Thanks for listening to the podcast, engaging with us, thinking about what we talk about, think about the movies. And, uh, you know, listening, doing this with us. We really appreciate it. So uh, slash filmcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you guys next week.